0: And we have uh, two readings this evening. The first of those is Revelation chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1237, 1237 in the Pew Bibles, Revelation chapter 5. And we'll read together from verse 1. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Revelation 5 verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory And praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. The second reading is from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Read from verse 4, Philippians 2, verse 4, it's page 1179 in your Pew Bibles. Philippians 2, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What more up? Tomorrow, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but tomorrow is a significant day because from tomorrow there are 14 weeks until Christmas. and The countdown will begin to begin. I'm not sure, that was met with a groan. Uh, I'm not sure whether you, uh, you're keen for Christmas to come or not, but I'm sure each of us have at least one or two things that we enjoy about Christmas. It's maybe the, uh, the nostalgia of the season or the music or the time off work or the time with family and friends. Uh, maybe the, the snow, the old films on television the lights, the nativity service, carols by candlelight. We are, we're going to have a carols by candlelight service. can exclusively reveal uh, this Christmas, on Christmas Eve, a watch night service. Uh, maybe that's what appeals to you, what you look forward to when it comes to Christmas. Maybe singing the Christmas carols. Personally, I like the Paradoxes of the Incarnation, which is maybe why I don't get invited to many Christmas parties. The Paradoxes of the Incarnation, we just sang about some of them, you saw the words on the screen behind me, a paradox according to dictionary.com is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. A seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition, which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. The paradoxes of the incarnation are, I think, wonderful, and genuinely one of the things I look forward to at Christmas time is standing here or there and being able to quote some of my favorite quotes. I manage it every Christmas, or maybe Spurgeon, he says, infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. Or maybe a more modern pastor, Sam Storms. He says, the words became flesh, God became human, the invisible became visible, the untouchable became touchable, the transcendent one descended and drew near, the unlimited became limited, the infinite became finite, the immutable became mutable, the unbreakable became fragile. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The exalted was humbled. The more you think about these things, these truths, these uh, paradoxes of Scripture, almost the the less you understand them, the less you feel able to, to, to grasp them and to hold onto them. And for me, that's the way that the truth should be. It should always stretch us. We should always struggle to contain it. We should never encounter uh, the truth as it is presented to us in Scripture and think, well, I've got that. I can, I can tick the box and move on. Where the truth presented to us in that way, if I could fit the truth into my tiny brain, and be comfortable with that and tick the box and move on. Frankly, I would be a lot less inclined to believe it or to receive it as true. It's so great and it's so glorious that it should be hard for us to fully grasp hold of. And I think the paradoxes that Scripture present to us enable us to meet the truth with some measure of wonder and awe and humility. So we're going to think about a great biblical paradox this evening. There we go. Wonder if you remember, as a child, the books that you read. I used to read a lot as a boy, and I remember reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first book in the series. It? They must have put it on like children's BBC in the 80s. So I can remember reading the book and then watching the program and spoiling it for my wee brother and my mum telling them what was going to happen. And I loved that book. I remember, uh, I think it's Peter and Lucy and my siblings, stepping through the wardrobe into this wonderful foreign world. And maybe for you, you haven't read the line, The Witch and the Wardrobe. Maybe for you, it was Alice as she fell into wonderland. Or maybe it was Charlie as he stepped into the chocolate factory. Everything's normal, and then just a few steps, you're in this place that is utterly unrecognizable. I remember, uh, quite literally, as, as I, I read that book, I can remember the hairs in the back of my head standing up at the excitement of this world that these children had just stepped into. And it strikes me that that is how we should feel no matter what age we are, that is how we should feel as we come to these chapters of the book of Revelation. As we come to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, says the Apostle John, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. This is a door into the, the fullness of the presence of God, a door into heaven. This isn't uh, make-believe. This isn't a work of fiction. This isn't Narnia or Wonderland. This is reality. And you might expect the second half of chapter 4, verse 1, to be, then the door was closed. But I got a wee tiny glimpse. Or then a, an angel came and ushered me away. But that's not what happens. Instead, there is a voice. That says, Come up here, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. This is, remember, reality. Language might struggle to describe what John saw. You get this sense, I think, as you read Revelation 4 and 5 and other places as well, that whatever words John reaches for to try and describe what he has seen and what he has heard will in some way fall short. But nevertheless, this is real, and it is great, and it is glorious. He sees a throne, and on the throne is one so brilliant in glory that the only way John is able to help us To see what he saw is to compare this one, who he can't even bring himself really to to, to name as two precious stones, jasper and carnelian. And then around the throne, there are these heavenly creatures and angels and elders. And then this scene of heavenly worship unfolds before him. God is praised for his eternal existence. He is the great I am. He didn't have a beginning, a birth. He he didn't come out of a, a people group. He is always I am. And so he is praised for his eternal existence. He is praised for his holiness, his perfection. And he is praised for his work as creator, God. And God holds in his hand, in his right hand, so that's signifying the place of most importance, he holds in his right hand a scroll. And with that, we kind of step into chapter 5. Oh, sorry. There we go. A sealed scroll. There are seven seals on this scroll that God holds in his right hand. And the number seven uh, symbolizes perfection in the sense of completeness. So it is completely sealed. No one is going to see into this scroll unless they are able to break those seven seals. Perfectly sealed. It's not like sometimes you see a politician running to or from number 10 Downing Street and they've got all the papers in their hand and one of the papers says confidential, but all, loads of people take pictures of it and they're able to read this supposedly confidential note and it's printed in the papers for all to see the next day. No leaks. It's not going to be uh, hacked by some rogue nation state or by anonymous. Seven seals. It is perfectly sealed and it will only be read when someone is able to break these seals and to open this scroll. So, what is on the scroll, and why does it matter so much? In the ancient world, scrolls would have been very expensive. Paper, as it were, would have been very expensive. And a scroll like this, with these seals on it, would only have been used for a very important document, probably a very important legal document. Some commentators have suggested that it's the title deeds to the world. That's what this scroll is. Is this scroll is probably God's judgments on the world, and it matters so much because until this scroll is opened, until God's judgments on the world are able to be read and proclaimed, then God's plan for the world can't be brought to completion. There needs to be a judge to open and to execute God's judgment on the world, God's verdict on the world. So we are looking, heaven is looking, not just for a high court judge, but for the highest court judge that there is. Wrongs cannot be put right. Justice cannot be done. Right and wrong, light and darkness, cannot be teased apart until the seals are broken, and the scroll is opened. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Actually, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on on the throne. It actually says, then I saw on the right hand, Of him who sat on the throne so you have this picture almost of, of God himself holding this scroll out in the palm of his hand almost inviting anyone who is worthy to come and to take it from him to break the seals and to open the scroll and that is exactly what the angel announces uh, that heaven is looking for. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy? Not who is willing, not who is wanting. Who is worthy to break these seals and to open this scroll? And then two remarkably rare things happen in heaven. Firstly, there is silence. I don't know how you, how you picture heaven. There is a picture of heaven as being a very quiet place, a very quiet place with people kind of, it's quite ethereal, so everyone's floating about. Maybe now and then an angel floats past you quietly, strumming on a harp. But by and large, it's, it's very, very quiet. Maybe some classic, some Bach or something playing in the background, but it's very, very quiet. And you're floating about, nothing's really real. That's one picture of heaven but it's not the picture of heaven that that the Bible presents to us. When we read what Scripture says about heaven, it's presented to us as a very noisy place. There are shouts of joy and shouts of triumph and songs of praise and worship and adoration. It's a loud place, but here heaven falls silent. seems that no one is worthy to open this scroll remember we are looking for a supreme judge and in the ancient world the supreme judge was the king that was we've got a different system altogether now here but the judge and the king were one and the same person in the ancient world so we're looking for a judge who is worthy to proclaim the judgments of God on the world. And we're looking for a king who is worthy to rule and to reign in the name of God. A king who is worthy to rule righteously and a judge who is worthy and able to judge justly in the name of God. And it seems for a moment to the apostle that no one is worthy, no one is worthy to judge or to rule the world in the name of God. No angel steps forward, no elder speaks up, neither a single hand nor a solitary voice is raised for a moment. And then the second really rare, unusual thing happens in heaven. There is the sound of weeping, there is the sound of sorrow, the sound of, of Sadness. When we get to heaven, we will struggle to find someone weeping. We will struggle to find sorrow or sadness, because the old order of things will have been swept aside by the Lord Jesus Christ. When we enter, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. But here John weeps and weeps. He longs for that book to be open, for a judge to judge justly, and for a king to rule righteously. And I wonder if we could understand or, or, or empathize with the way that he felt. I have been to court once in my life. I, w- I was a boy, and uh, my na- we had terrible neighbors. My neighbor assaulted me, and we thought, this is We have to deal with this so we took it to court and we had absolutely no concept of what was going to happen and uh, I was ushered into this wee box in the courtroom and uh, the lawyer tried to pick apart my story and I was just about old enough basically to hold my own in those um, those discussions and, uh, I do, and I sat down, and had this kind of sigh of relief, I thought, I've, I've got through it at least. And then my wee brother, so I was just a boy, he was just a wee boy, he was then called up, and he got into this thing, and I could see that he looked really, really nervous. And the lawyer started picking away at his story, and he could, the lawyer could see that my wee brother was getting a wee bit emotional, and he could... He said, son, you're going to have to speak up. you will have to speak up. And he started really bullying my wee brother. And I have to sit there. I can't do anything. I just have to watch this unfold. And then the lawyer walks to the furthest corner of the courtroom. I mean, it's completely ridiculous because there's nobody away over there. But he walks right into the corner and starts saying to my wee brother, son, if I can't hear you from here, then it's not good enough for me. Gets my brother emotional till he starts to weep and then he starts to try and pick apart this story. He just bullies, mercilessly bullies my wee brother. And I look at the judge and I just see this mix of utter indifference and utter incompetence. And this case proceeds in the end, justice is not done, and the guilty party walks away with a, a a smirk and a swagger, and we go home, and we have to endure our house shaking with the sound of their party and their celebratory music uh, interspersed with shouts of swear words to us, and a terrible experience. And I, I tasted that day what injustice tastes like, the bitterness of injustice and now when I see or I hear of people who face worse injustices than I have ever faced, I try and remember what that felt like, what that tasted like, there were victims of abuse in the news again this week, I don't know if you saw that or not, children who had been now adults but they were children physically and sexually abused by people who are claiming to serve Jesus Christ. Will justice be done? Maybe there will be an inquiry. Maybe justice will be done to some extent, but it will be partial at best. How long will the wicked, O Lord? How long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. How long, O Lord? John weeps. It's like justice will never be done. Wrong will never be made right. And he weeps and he weeps until an elder turns John's gaze towards Jesus. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion is always presented to us in Scripture as victorious. A a, a creature that is always victorious in battle. And Jesus is the one who has conquered. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where every single person in the history of humanity has failed, Jesus succeeded. Where we were defeated, Jesus has conquered in our name, in our place, Like David, when all the men of Israel stood looking at their shoelaces quivering in their boots as Goliath towered over them, then David was the only one who stepped out with his sling and the stones, and he conquered, he defeated Goliath. Well, we are like those Israelites when it comes to the realities of sin and death and hell. We cannot conquer them, but Jesus has stepped out in our name, and He has conquered sin and death and hell. He is the Lion of Judah. Genesis 49, verse 9, is where this image of Judah as being a lion is first mentioned. It says, Judah is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who will dare to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will obey. Well, Jesus is the one to whom the scepter belongs. Jesus is a lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus is God's victorious king, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is worthy to reign in righteousness. I know that you're all on the edge of your pews now, and you're thinking two questions, Ross, aren't you? Yes, (laughs) you're thinking, but how and what? How did he conquer, and what does he look like? This lion from the tribe of Judah. How did they conquer and what does he look like? This victorious, fearsome lion. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This lion looks like a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that looks like it has been slain. The two images just don't go together, do they? They are at opposite ends of the spectrum, a lion and a lamb. Only on, on Thursday, I saw an article in the newspaper, an American, I took a screenshot just to prove it, an American uh, footballer, and I mean football when I say football, like soccer, an American footballer had been criticised by a retired American footballer. And he was obviously stung by this criticism. And his response to this retired footballer was, the lion doesn't care about what the sheep has to say. The lion doesn't care about the opinion of the sheep, is what he said. So he was looking for a way of picturing this guy who criticized him as being weak and, and, and foolish, and a way of picturing himself as being strong and noble. And the images that he found were that of a sheep and a lion. They are, they are poles apart. They are at opposite ends of the spectrum. A lion is a victorious warrior. A sheep is seen as a vulnerable weakling. Here is the great paradox of Scripture. The lion of the tribe of Judah... That looks like a sheep not just a sheep but a lamb not just a lamb but a lamb that has been slain this is far from the image of a lion as we can possibly picture in our minds but why well those of us who were at the prayer meeting on wednesday will know why won't we we looked at mark chapter 8 at the prayer meeting Peter's confession of Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus says, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, and he is right. But who is the Christ? Jesus says that he is, in the next verse, the Son of Man. That title, the Son of Man, takes us back to Daniel 7, when we see this uh, kingly figure, one like a son of man, who enters into the presence of, of the Ancient of Days, and people from all tribes and tongues and nations, all people groups, gather before Him to worship. He stands there in the presence of Almighty God, resplendent in glory, worshipped by all peoples. That is the Son of Man. This, This phrase of Daniel that became this messianic title. Glorious, Majestic, victorious. The Christ is the Son of Man. But the route that Jesus took to that majesty and that glory and that victory was a surprising one. Because as soon as he has taken the title of the Son of Man, he then tells Peter that he's going to have to suffer many things, that he's going to be rejected that he's going to be killed. Peter can't get his head around this. Jesus says, I am the son of man that Daniel spoke of, but I am also the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, it's all very well for us to long for the seals to be broken and for the scroll to be opened and for justice to come. It's all very well for me to stand here and tell you a story about an injustice that was done against me, but the reality is that we have all fallen short that we have all failed, that we have all sinned against good and against God, in thought, in words, and in deeds, and yet Jesus loved us. In loving kindness, as Bill um, brought to us this morning, in loving kindness, God reached out to us reached down to us in Christ Jesus he humbled himself to step down into the darkness of our world to be rejected by his own people to be mocked to be subject to the injustice of a corrupt court to be spat on to be put down only to be lifted up on a cross for our sin and for our guilt and for our shame. Though he never sinned, he died the death of a sinner for us, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. This is why he is worthy, and this is how he has conquered. This is the great paradox of Scripture, death defeated by the death of Jesus, because it was impossible for death to keep its grip on the very author of life itself. He rose victorious, triumphant, and all who are in Christ will share in His victory. God's justice is not compromised when He opens a scroll and declares us, His people, to be righteous. And He will rule and reign in righteousness and joy for all eternity. And we will get to share by grace, we will get to share. By the kindness of God, we will get to share in the very joy of Jesus for all eternity. So as we finish, two prayers. Firstly, may we be a people of praise. That seems to be the natural outworking of what we have looked at from Revelation chapter 5. We haven't focused in the end of the chapter. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May we be a people of praise, a people of worship. And secondly, lastly, may we remember that the path to true glory is not to, to trample on others to get to the top of the tree, The path to true glory is to be kind, to be merciful, to be humble, to serve others as we look to the example of the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself for us. That is the way of our Lord, as weak and as foolish as it may seem. And that is the way to glory. So, may we follow Him with gratitude and with gladness. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. And then we will stand to sing, You're the Lion of Judah. Father, we thank You for the image of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have been given by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 5. He is the lion who is victorious and conquering, the one who will reign and rule in righteousness. And yet even in that image of Jesus as the lion, we have a hint at his humility. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, He is the one who was willing to humble himself to be born as a man, to to be born into a people group. We thank you, Father, for the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Lamb without blemish, without the speck or the stain of sin. And yet, once again, in that image of humility and vulnerability, there is a hint at the majesty and the splendor of the Lamb. He is the Lamb with seven eyes, the Lamb who can see all things. And He is the Lamb with seven horns, He is the one who is not only all-seeing, but all-powerful. And so may it be our joy to get to know Him, to come to know Him more fully, to come to serve Him more faithfully, and to come to lead others to the feet of Jesus so that they might come to see His beauty, to worship Him for who He is, for what He has done, and to receive from Him life in all of its fullness. Thank you, Father. We praise you and we pray to you in Christ's name, Amen.